Mormon War of 1838 is never far from the collective memories of the Latter-day Saints. Today we're going to explore a part of that story that deserves to be retold, the imprisonment of Parley P. Pratt. We're going to learn what it was like to be locked up in Missouri in the 1830s, and we're going to see how Parley worked up the courage to attempt a daring, high-risk escape. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. October 31st, 1838 was one of the darkest days in the history of the church. After disarming the people, the Missouri militia ransacked the town of Far West. Many lost everything, and many suffered terribly from the outrages of the mob. A number of church leaders were arrested, including Joseph Smith, his brother Hiram, and Parley P. Pratt. Parley and the other church leaders were handed over to the civilian authorities and put in jail pending their trials. On today's episode, we'll pick up with the story of Parley arriving at the Richmond jail. He was one of several men charged with murder, the charge coming from the skirmish the week before that came to be known as the Battle of Crooked River. The battle started after a company of Missouri militia, led by Samuel Boggart, captured three Mormon settlers in Ray County, Missouri, and then decided to go on a quick campaign to harass the Mormon settlers in Caldwell County. Hearing this, the Mormon militia under the command of David Patton went off in pursuit to rescue their captured brothers. The two militias made contact in Ray County on the 25th of October and fired on each other. In the fighting, Parley led his column of troops in a charge and ended up driving the Missourians from the field. One Missouri soldier was killed in the fighting, and Parley now found himself imprisoned and accused of murder, along with Morris Phelps and Lumen Gibbs. Later, they would be joined by King Follett, whose funeral in 1844 would give rise to one of Joseph Smith's most famous sermons. But for now, inside the Richmond jail, the future was anything but promising. Parley knew that all odds were against either a fair trial or an escape. Most likely, he would die in a matter of months, hanged in front of a jeering crowd. When he first arrived at the jail, there was already about 20 men inside. There was no furniture of any kind, just a defective stove that pumped smoke into the cell. As the door swung open, Parley wrote that it looked like a huge, yawning pit to receive me. He recoiled at first, but the guards motivated him to get in by jabbing at him with their bayonets. Once inside, he threw himself onto the floor, trying to find oxygen. He spent the next few days face down, sick with smoke inhalation. Life got easier after a week, as all but five of the prisoners were released on bail. But for Parley, the suspected murderer, bail was denied. So what was it like to be locked up in Missouri in the 1830s? Well, first the food. Parley described the food as most unwholesome. The prisoners lived on bones, meat remnants, and cornbread, sometimes some coffee. Without utensils or furniture, the prisoners ate standing up, with their hands and fingers. Two or three men were always on guard duty. Never one to hold back, Parley described the guards as a set of the most unprincipled, profligate villains that could be found anywhere. As guard duty was almost always a dull affair, 
The guards found ways to pass the time. They swore, they drank, gambled, and sang what Parley called the most obscene and disgusting songs. They boasted about their exploits against the Mormons, shooting, plundering, and raping. The guards enjoyed taunting Parley with lurid descriptions of what lie ahead for him, either the hangman's noose after his trial, or, if the people of Ray County couldn't wait that long, a nighttime visit from a lynch mob. He was threatened daily with assassination, he remembered. But it wasn't only the prisoners that the guards enjoyed abusing. Parley wrote in his memoir how the guards were always on the lookout for black women unfortunate enough to be walking within earshot of the jail. The guards would become especially animated in screaming abuse at them, trying to outdo each other in who could think up the most depraved things to shout. In fits of laughter and boasting that always followed, Parley saw that the Latter-day Saint women were not alone in the outrages they suffered from these kind of men, men that seemed to Parley more like demons than humans. And it wasn't only the guards that tormented him. Parley listed, among the other miseries of prison life, the constant bickering of his fellow prisoner, Lumen Gibbs, and his wife, Phyla. Like Parley, Gibbs was charged with murder for his involvement in the Battle of Crooked River. After being confined, he decided to turn state's evidence and testify against his fellow prisoners. Or, in Parley's words, he denied the faith and turned a traitor. This got him more favorable treatment, better food, better quarters, and even days off. He was allowed to leave the jail whenever he pleased, sometimes for hours or even entire days at a time. Gibbs was, in Parley's description of him, a hard-faced, ill-formed man of about 50 years of age, full of jealousy, extremely selfish, very weak-minded, and withal, a little love-cracked. Love-cracked. Gibbs was allowed to leave the jail whenever he pleased in order to spend time with Phyla, or, as often happened, have Phyla stay in the jail with him. According to Parley, Phyla Gibbs was a coarse, tall, muscular woman. Lumen Gibbs constantly complained about her, though Parley could never understand why. It was perfectly true that his wife didn't love him, but as Parley reasoned, no woman ever could, so he had no reason to complain. But the two of them kept up a constant, noisy strife with their bickering. A routine started to develop. Every two or three nights, Gibbs would stop fighting for a time and try to regain her affection. Parley described the ritual. He began by drawing down his face and drawling his words with a loud and doleful tone. Phyla, won't you love me? Come, here's my watch, and here's all the money I've got. Oh, that I had been born a rich man. I would give you a dollar a minute to love me. No matter how often he tried this technique, it never seemed to win her over. After some time, Philo would turn on him, mocking and spurning him as a silly old fool. His affections thus rebuffed, humiliated in front of the guards and the other prisoners, Gibbs would fly into a rage and scream, Get a long way, you f- Nobody wants your love, no how! One night, everybody in the prison awoke to a frightful crash, followed by the sound of Phyla cackling in exaltation. Lumen, what's the matter? What's the matter, Lumen? Gibbs lay moaning on the floor. It turned out, in the dead of night, 
She had braced her back against the wall, and with both feet placed on his body, she kicked with all her power, sending him flying out of the bed and sprawling him out on the far side of the room. Such scenes as these, Parley wrote, rendered our sufferings complete. Parley learned that in April of 1839, the prisoners who had been transferred to Liberty Jail, Joseph and Hiram Smith among others, had escaped. The only Latter-day Saint prisoners who remained in the state of Missouri were King Follett, Morris Phelps, and Parley. He became desperate to escape. To tarry there and drag out a miserable life, he wrote, was worse than to die 10,000 deaths. Parley began seeing what he believed were signs that he should escape. In a dream or a vision, Parley saw the spirit of his first wife, thankful Halsey Pratt, who had died just over two years ago. She appeared to him and told him that he would again have his liberty and be with his family. Then Parley's brother Orson Pratt arrived. When talking with Parley, Orson randomly opened the Book of Mormon, and his attention fell on Alma chapter 20, verse 3, which reads, Behold, my brother and brethren are in prison, and I go that I may deliver them. And then, in two successive dreams, Parley saw how they might attempt an escape. Convinced now that their path was to risk a jailbreak, Parley began to share his plan with King Follett and Morris Phelps. The prisoners had managed to get a change of venue, and so they were moved a hundred miles to the town of Columbia, Boone County. The Columbia Jail sat in the town square next to the courthouse. It was a two-story building with the prisoners kept upstairs and the jailer and his family living on the ground floor. The door to the cell was heavy, made of oak and iron. It was strong enough, Parley noted, to secure a Bonaparte or a Samson. But often during the day, this heavy door would be left open. Still, there was another door that kept the prisoners from escaping. And this second inner door had a latch at the top through which the jailer could pass plates and food. The only problem came with the coffee pot. The opening at the top was not wide enough for a smooth pass, and so the coffee would often spill and burn fingers. So every so often, the jailer would simply open the door a few inches, pass the pot in, and then quickly lock it up. The entire jailbreak plan would depend on whether the jailer opened the door or passed the coffee through the opening. The prisoners now had several trusted friends on the outside, including Mrs. Laura Phelps and Orson Pratt, and they all determined that the day of escape would be the 4th of July. They thought it was a lucky day for the country, and Parley wrote, We determined to make that notable day either a jubilee for us or to die in the attempt. But in the meantime, they had to conceal their plan. So they tried to act like they were getting ready for trial. The prisoners hired an attorney. They asked the court permission to have an agent collect affidavits from Mormon witnesses in Illinois, arguing that since they had been banished from the state, they weren't likely to appear in court. Preparations like these gave a plausible cover story for their friends to go around town, looking like they were preparing for trial, when really, they were preparing for jailbreak. Finally, the day came. Independence Day, 1839. In his autobiography, Parley took pains to describe all the elaborate ruses they came up with to hide the preparations for the escape. Not entirely clear, though, why he did that, as when the day came, he was so excited that he all but shouted to the town that they were going to break out. 
The prisoners had sewn an old shirt into a flag for the occasion with the word Liberty spelled out in large letters. They hung the flag outside the jail cell facing the town square. It became a great joke among the people of Columbia. Many people read it and laughed at the irony. Mormon prisoners celebrating liberty inside a jail. But inside the jail, things were hardly less festive. The prisoners sat down to a feast provided from the city's public table, knowing that one way or another, their time in jail was coming to an end. They were all in great spirits. By late afternoon, the town was preparing for the night's big event. The square began filling up with people. A group of boys gathered outside the jail asked the prisoners if they could have the liberty flag. Sorry, they told the boys, we can't spare it until tomorrow. Now that was probably not an ideal response, as it could have tipped a canny jailer off to something big happening the next day. But if the liberty flag was a bit on the nose, it was nothing compared with what Parley had planned next. As the sun sank, the prisoners gathered in prayer and sang a hymn several times over, a hymn that Parley had composed especially for the occasion, the Jailbreak Hymn. The prisoners sang it very loudly and distinctly, in full hearing of the ever-watchful Lumen Gibbs and the jailer and the entire town of Columbia. It went like this. Lord, cause their foolish plans to fail and let them faint or die. Our souls will quit this poor old jail and fly to Illinois to join with the embodied saints who are with freedom blessed. That only joy for which we pant with them a while to rest. Give joy for grief, give ease for pain, take all our foes away, and let us find our friends again on this eventful day. Miraculously, singing at the top of their lungs about breaking out of jail and flying to Illinois didn't raise anybody's suspicions, not even when they clarified it would be on this eventful day. And so if that didn't tip anybody off, you have to wonder whether all of those elaborate ruses that they designed were wasted on the simple-minded folk of Columbia, Missouri. Finally, the prisoners heard the footsteps of the jailer coming towards them to bring them their coffee, hearts pounding, pulses racing. They tried to control their agitation as best they could as the top latch opened and the jailer began passing the plates through. Then, their hearts sank as they saw him raise the coffee pot to pass it through the top latch. In an instant, their plan seemed on the verge of failure. Several of them then, in their best effort at nonchalance, said, Colonel, won't you just open the door? It always burns our fingers. The jailer then lowered the pot and they heard the click-clack of the bolt. In that instant, they sprang into action. King Follett suddenly yanked on the door with all his might. Laura Phelps dropped to her knees, looked up at the ceiling, and cried, Lord God of Israel, thou canst help. Morris Phelps, Parley P., and King Follett in turn rushed through the opening. The jailer, arms stretched out against the wall, did his best to block the stairs, but no use. After six months in prison... They plowed him like a bowling ball, carrying him down the stairs with them in one or two bounds. The jailer's wife did her best to join in the fray, grabbing, tripping, and screaming the general alarm. Another moment brought the whole group into the town square, which, by that time, was filled with crowds of soldiers in uniform, mounted riflemen, and holiday makers, men, women, children, dogs, and cattle. Everything seemed to freeze for a moment as the group burst from the jail and spilled onto the street. 
Fourth of July may not have been an ideal time for a jailbreak. Maybe the third, or maybe the fifth of July would have been a bit less crowded or at least drawn less attention. But whether they thought that or not, Parley, Morris Phelps, and King Follett turned towards a thicket half a mile away and took off at a dead sprint. Overcoming their shock, the town flew into pandemonium. Horses, dogs, boys, soldiers, jailer and all were after them in a moment. But a moment too late, as the prisoners, almost fainting with the effort, reached the thicket where their friends had horses waiting. They mounted and scattered. Meanwhile, back at the jail, Laura Phelps soon became the object of public contempt. Sitting outside the building, the jailer and his wife began screaming at her, telling the town that she had been the cause of all this mischief. Surrounded by the angry crowd, she sat silent as they screamed, cursed, and jeered at her. Suddenly, the cry came up. They had caught one of the Mormons. The crowd parted as the group dragged the unfortunate man back to jail. If it's her husband, someone shouted, let's roast him over a slow fire. The call was taken up and shouted again. But it wasn't Morris Phelps, it was King Follett. They dragged him back to the prison and chained him to the floor. (laughs) Meanwhile, Parley and Morris Phelps had separated. At full gallop, Parley cleared one fence after another, but on his third fence, a rifleman rushed him. Close to point blank, he shouted, Stop, you, or I'll shoot you! Parley turned and galloped off toward the forest, but the rifleman didn't fire, and in a few moments, Parley was plunging into the darkness of the forest. He could hear excited voices and horses in the distance all around him, and he kept going. When he could go no more, and not knowing where he was, he tied his horse, walked some distance, and climbed a tree. He was dead asleep in an instant. He woke up the next day to a quiet morning and thanked the Lord. If I don't know where I am, no one else does either. He cautiously made his way across the country and toward Illinois. Morris Phelps, after galloping away, managed to outpace all his pursuers. Unlike Parley, who at that moment was concealed in a tree in the forest, Morris Phelps decided to just act natural and head along the main road toward Illinois. After a few miles, he heard a group of armed men galloping behind him. In another instant, he was surrounded. Weapons drawn and at the ready, the men demanded of him, Say, stranger, yeah, what's your name? In a rare moment of history, Morris Phelps was apparently inspired to curse and profane with all his might. He replied in kind, Why, you group of rascals, what's my name? What's your name, you all to... An immediate change came over the men, and they begged his pardon. Oh, sir, you are one of the true breed. By no Mormon could counterfeit that language, but you swear real natural. Hurrah for old Kentuck, but where might you live, stranger? Doing his best to imitate the talk of old Kentuck, he replied, Well, you might have knowed me. I think I seed you all a heap of times, but I've been so drunk for the 4th of July, I hardly know myself. But what about them Mormons? <laughs> Why, those goddamn rascals raised a flag of liberty in open day and burst out and down the stairs right in the middle of the public celebration, outrassled the jailer and outrun the whole town in a fair foot race. They reached a thicket and mounted some nags, and the way they cleared was a caution to Crockett. We took one of them, but we couldn't catch him nor shoot him neither. 
One of the men then offered, I even raised my new Kentucky rifle, fresh loaded and primed, and took aim at one of their heads, but the d- cap burst, and the powder wouldn't burn. Morris Phelps, trying to act the part, continued, Did you say you catched one of them? Why, I thought you'd have killed him on the spot. What have you done with him? Ah, uh, it was only the old one. If it had been one of them t'other chaps, we'd have skinned him as quick as Crockett would a coon. Off they went, and Morris Phelps ambled at an easy pace all the way to Illinois. As for King Follett, he passed several days chained to the floor in the basement of the jail. But as the general excitement and the outrage of the town began to ebb, the jailer and the townsfolk decided he was, after all, a brave man and a fine fellow to try a jailbreak in the middle of the celebration. They began laughing with him about the adventure and decided it was the most memorable 4th of July that Columbia had observed. A few months later, the court decided there was no probable cause to support a charge against him, and King Follett was released. But arguably, the bravest person involved in this adventure was Mrs. Laura Phelps, the only member of the group who made no effort or provision for her own safety. She endured the public's contempt for several hours. The jailer confiscated her horse and rode it all over the county in search for the escaped prisoners. But after several hours of enduring the public's abuse, a young man in the town declared that he was not accustomed to seeing a female treated that way in America, and he had no stomach for it. He was sure, he declared, that his mother would take this unfortunate lady under her roof and under her protection. He brought Laura Phelps to his mother's house, where she stayed for two weeks. After searching for the prisoners in vain, The jailer then returned her horse and saddle, and she set out to join her husband in Illinois. Thank you for joining us on our first episode of Adventures in Mormon History. I'm your host, Nate Olson. 